We continue our sermon series in Exodus. We'll be in Exodus 15. Now, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be printed on the screen behind me. Uh, but you can also, in the church app, you can follow along. There's a sermon listening guide. Uh, the scripture is printed there as well. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your, holy, on your mountain. The place, O Lord, you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The other day, my wife showed me a series of graphics that were titled, If 2020 Were Blank, followed by a picture. I'll share a few of them with you. If 2020 were a swing, it was a picture of a swing with a brick wall. If 2020 were a slide, and there was a picture of a slide with the end of it being a cheese grater. If 2020 was a house, and it had a picture of an outhouse. And then this last one, this is probably my favorite. If 2020 was a scented candle, and then there was a picture of porta potties on fire. 2020 has been difficult. It's been a hard, hard year. We could fill this room up with reasons why not to rejoice in 2020. And even if you pull yourself out of 2020 and put yourself in another year, there are always reasons why not to rejoice because we live in a fallen and a broken world. 
And yet the scriptures make it super clear, Philippians 4.4 being one of them, that we are to rejoice always. We're commanded to rejoice. One German theologian says this, the glum, sour faces of many Christians. They rather give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, they have just come from the sheriff who has auctioned off their sins and now are sorry they can't get them back again. Why do you have reason to rejoice? Why? Because of what God has done and what God will do. Let's start with what God's done. The first 10 verses of Exodus 15 are filled with poetic language. It's a song about what God did to Pharaoh and his armies as they pursued God's people through the Red Sea, what God did to close the sea on top of them. It's a song, it's poetic language, but what exactly did God do? It's striking to see how Moses and God's people describe Pharaoh in this song. Look at verse nine. The enemy said, the enemy being Pharaoh, said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. They described Pharaoh as the enemy, as the one who desired to divide them, conquer them, consume them, destroy them. And yet just one chapter ago, prior to the parting of the Red Sea, God's people described Pharaoh and Egypt very differently. His people are backed up against the sea and what do they do? They cry out to the Lord in defiance. And they begin to accuse Moses, really accusing the Lord, but through Moses of bringing them out to the wilderness to die. Then they accuse Moses and the Lord of disrupting their comfortable life in Egypt. Then they say with great boldness and confidence, we would rather serve Pharaoh and serve the Egyptians than die out here in the wilderness under the care of Moses and the Lord. Prior to them being miraculously saved through the Red Sea, they are describing Pharaoh as an ally, as a helper, not an enemy. And yet on this side of the Red Sea, on this side of salvation, they begin to describe Pharaoh as an enemy. What we learn here is that sin is your enemy, not your ally. It's your enemy, not your ally. Everyone has a relationship to sin. That is universal. Everyone has a relationship to sin. Prior to God intervening in your life, you relate to sin as an ally. It is your helper. It is as last week I talked about coping mechanisms. Sin is the way you cope with disappointments and difficulties in a broken world. Sin is your helper. It is a pain reliever. That's how it functions. That's how you relate to it. It is your ally. But once God reveals sin as your enemy on this side of salvation, you relate to it as an enemy. That it's not your friend. Sin is not your friend. It's not your ally. 
It's an enemy. On July 30th, 1945, the battle cruiser, the USS Indianapolis, was returning from a mission where it had delivered supplies, enriched uranium to the Allied forces in the Pacific. It never made it back. It was hit with a Japanese torpedo and this ship full of 1,200 men sank in 12 minutes. 300 died right away. 900 were left floating in the Pacific Ocean without food, without water, with the hot sun for four days and five nights. And of those 900, only 316 survived. One of those survivors was the chief medical officer. And this is what he wrote about his experience. He said, there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep the men from drinking the water. When the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear ocean, we were so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and food, and they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I remember striking the ones who were drinking the salt water to try to stop them. They would get dehydrated, then become maniacal. There were mass hallucinations. In the midst of their pain, they related to this salt water as their ally, as their friend. And while it, it seemed so clear and crystal that it would quench their thirst, it actually killed them. It actually killed them. Even the medical officer trying to, to hit them and strike them to get them to stop. What we learn is that apart from God's intervention in your life, apart from salvation, you will treat sin as an ally. And yet sin is your enemy because ultimately it brings forth death. So when God intervenes in salvation, the number one thing he does when he intervenes in your life is to reveal to you that sin is an enemy, that it's no longer an ally. It's no longer a, a helper. But he doesn't just reveal sin as the enemy. He defeats it. This passage is full. The first 10 verses are full of, of warrior language, of God as a warrior fighting for his people. Right, look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war or warrior. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand shatters the enemy. Verse seven, you overthrow your adversaries. Verse eight, at the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. And then following verse nine, which is that verse of just the arrogant, confident claim of Pharaoh as the enemy, verse 10 reads, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. This does not describe a back and forth battle. This describes a beatdown. This is a thrashing. This is total and 100% victory by God. As verse six says, the Lord shatters. The imagery there shatters 
the enemy. The reason that sin is your enemy is because of what it produces. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The only reason that physical death and spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, the only reason those exist is because of sin. Because sin entered the world in Genesis 3, that is when physical and spiritual death became a reality in this world. First Corinthians 15, 25 says, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God has shattered the enemy of death. How did he do it? Well, reading further down in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus destroyed death through death. That Jesus died, that he took on death himself to remove sin which produces death. And that's why death no longer has sting to it. You think about bees that sting. Have you ever been around someone that when the bees start flying around and swarming, they literally paralyze in fear? Maybe that's you. Or they run frantically in fear. Typically that's because of two reasons. One is they're just, they're allergic to bees. They're frightened. Or they're just absolutely afraid of the pain of the sting. Not all bees have stingers. In fact, all male bees, they don't have stingers. They can't sting you. Now, it's hard to distinguish between a male and a female bee, but let's just assume, let's just assume that you were being swarmed by bees, okay? And assume that you had 100% assurance that these bees did not have stingers, that they couldn't sting you. Can you imagine the difference that experience would be? The fear would be gone, right? The threat of the sting would be gone. Jesus has removed the stinger out of death. He's taken the stinger out of death, which is sin. Donald Barnhouse, he a, was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Philadelphia. He was a pastor of the church when his wife died and he was left raising his young daughters alone. Uh, and he did the unthinkable. He actually conducted the funeral for his wife. I can't imagine but he was on the drive to the funeral with his young daughters in the car, and he longed to explain to them what had happened to their mother and to give them some perspective. So they pulled up this stoplight. It was a, a beautiful, sunny day, and the sun was pouring into the car, warming the car, and the, inside the car was bright from the sun. And then this, this truck pulled up next to them, large truck. And the shadow of the truck covered their car so that the car became darkened on the inside by the shadow. And Donald Barnhouse asked his daughters at that point, he said, took that moment, he said, would you rather be struck by the shadow or struck by the truck? And one of his daughters piped up and said this, oh, daddy, that's a silly question. 
The shadow can't hurt you. I would rather be hit by the shadow than by a truck. And he went on to explain how their mother had been hit by a shadow, but that Jesus had stepped in the way, in her place to be hit by the truck. Jesus has shattered death. And then he went on to quote these familiar words from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. If the Red Sea represents death, then God split death open so that his people could walk through and then buried death. You have reason to rejoice because God has defeated the enemies of sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. But not only that, it's not what God has only done, it's what God will do that gives you reason to rejoice. And that's where this chapter turns to the future in verse 13. It turns to the future as God describes what he will do for his people when he brings them ultimately to Canaan, to the land that he had promised them. He promises to bring them home. He promises homecoming. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Then verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The mountain that's described here is Mount Zion. It's the place where the temple was built. When God's people crossed through the Red Sea, when they were saved from slavery in Egypt, their journey was just beginning. It was just beginning. They would spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they reached Canaan, the land God had promised. And then it would be another 300 years or so before the temple would be built on Mount Zion. That's a long journey of God bringing them home. He promised to bring them home, but you say, but what about that journey in between the Red Sea and homecoming? And that's where God acknowledges the dangers along the journey. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. This seems to describe the nations, Israel's enemies, falling like dominoes at the sight of Israel. That when they came, everyone just laid down and let them walk through. The problem is, that's not how the rest of the Old Testament describes the situation when Israel faces these enemies and these dangers. For example, take Edom. Edom doesn't quake in its boots when Israel shows up. Numbers chapter 20 says that they actually stand up 
And they deny and they push back and they won't let Israel come through their country to get to the promised land. Then you get to Moab. Moab, far from trembles at Israel's presence, Moab in Numbers 25 actually seduces God's people into idolatry. And then you move on to the Philistines and the Canaanites and and the scriptures in the Old Testament are just full of protracted struggles between God's people and the Philistines and the Canaanites. So you say, well, is, is this a contradiction? Right, Exodus 15 describes these enemies just laying down and Israel just cruising on home. And yet these other stories in the Old Testament describe intense battle, intense struggle. Which is it? Is this a contradiction? And the answer is no, because it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. The passages that describe Israel struggling deeply with these enemies along the way is described from a human perspective. But Exodus 15 is described from God's perspective. From his perspective, and from his perspective, the end was never in doubt. And the end is never in doubt from God's perspective. Even the circumstances along the journey are controlled by him. Over and over, God reminds his people to put their focus on the God who is in control over the circumstances, not the circumstances themselves. And that's what you read in Exodus 15, is a focus on God who is over the circumstances. And the end is never in doubt. When I was teaching my children how to ride a bike without training wheels, I would put them out on the bike, training wheels off, and I'd say, you're going to ride from our house to the end of the cul-de-sac. Now, you would get a different story of that journey depending on who was telling the story. From my kids' perspective, the journey from our house to the end of the cul-de-sac was wrought with danger, was wrought with difficulty, was wrought with near crashes, Lots of stress, lots of worry, lots of anxiety. In fact, if my kid, my child was telling the story, it would be something like this. And when we passed the neighbor's house, my bike started to wobble and I almost collided into the trash can. And then I was riding and a cat ran in front of me and I I jerked the wheel and almost flipped my bike and I almost went over the handlebars. And then when we hit that manhole, the bump was so hard that it almost flew me off my seat down to the pavement where I skinned my knees. Now, you hear that story from daddy's perspective? Here it is. My daughter rode her bike from the house to the end of the cul-de-sac. And nothing, not a garbage can, not a cat, not a manhole cover, would stop her from getting from the the house to the cul-de-sac. Now, I was in complete control of that bike on that journey. I ran alongside. I had my hand either on the seat in the back or close to it. And I was in control of the wobbles. There's times where she would really wobble and I wouldn't wouldn't correct because I was trying to get her to correct it herself. There's other times where I wouldn't let her wobble as much. I was in control of the journey. I was in control of the wobbles. And so it is with you on your journey from your perspective. 
depending on what you're facing. Your journey is wrought with dangers, hardship, calamities, pain, injustice. But from God's perspective, the end is never in doubt because God is not only in control of the end, he's in control of the circumstances along the way. To use the bike analogy, God is in control of the wobbles. How much of a wobble there is or how little of a wobble there is. This song of Moses in Exodus 15, one of the points of this song is to show that God doesn't have any rivals. It's not like God has rivals that he's trying to overcome. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? See, in that day, there were gods that, that warred over control of different parts of the world. And the whole point of this song is to say, God has no rival. He has no rival. So the question's not, is God going to win or is your cancer going to win? As if cancer is a rival to God. Or is God going to win or is your sin going to win? As if your sin is a rival to God. Or is the person who treats you unfairly or maybe abuses you going to win? Or is God going to win as if that person who is treating you unfairly or maybe even abusing you is a rival to God? God has no rivals. He has already won. He will win. He has defeated the enemies of sin and death through Jesus, and he will bring you home. He will bring you home. The end is never in doubt. So you have great reason to rejoice because of what God has done, what God will do. But the question is, how do you rejoice? How do you actually rejoice? Look at verse one. I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Bible is full of singing from start to finish on the heels of God's acts of salvation in history. Job 38 says that there was singing when God made the world. When Israel defeated Jabin, and Sisera, Deborah, and Barak sang for joy in Judges chapter five. King David, when God delivered him from his enemies, sang for joy in 2 Samuel 22. When Israel came home from exile, they sang in Isaiah 51. Then God sent his son into the world and the angels sang for joy. With Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, and others joining the chorus, in Luke chapters one to two. And now we sing in worship, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, as Colossians 3.16 commands. And then the Bible ends with a song. In Romans chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter 15, verses two to three, listen to this. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass, just like Moses and God's people stood by the Red Sea with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. 
The song of Moses has become the song of the Lamb, the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the one who has won victory over your sin and over death. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, Red, who is played by Morgan Freeman, he tells the story of Andy Dufresne. And Andy Dufresne is this young, successful banker who is wrongly convicted of murdering his wife. And so he's assigned to two full consecutive life terms in Shawshank Prison. And at one point in the movie, Andy Dufresne is assigned the, the job of taking all of these classical records that have been donated to the prison and kind of sorting through them. And he finds one, this, this record that is just a beautiful operatic piece. And he not only finds it, but he plays it, which was absolutely against prison regulations. So the guards start to ask him what he's doing, and then he, he locks himself in the sound room. And he starts playing this record, and he turns on the PA system so the whole prison can hear. And he blasts the music, and as soon as the music starts blasting, everyone in the prison stops what they're doing. And then Morgan Freeman says this, and I wish I could do it in Morgan Freeman's voice. I can't, but it, 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 it does justice to the quote. But listen to what he says. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those, voice, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in the great place dared to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. James Boyce, in one of his last sermons, described music this way. He said, music is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths we are embracing. Let's pray. Father, we have reason to rejoice because of what you've done to defeat the enemies of sin and death through your son, Jesus. And what you will do to bring us home. Father, thank you that the, the end is never in doubt. Although we face so many dangers and hardships and pain and calamity along the way, we can be assured that the victory has been won and that you will bring us home. And Father, thank you for the gift of music that you have given, that permeates your scriptures, that you've given to us to be able to sing those truths in memorable and meaningful ways that they can run deep into our hearts. 
Father, we pray now that as we sing to you the song of the Lamb, the song of Jesus Christ, that you would be pleased and honored and that our hearts would be full of joy. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.